For fans of the Magnus Archives, like me, Sasha Sienna and Jonathan Sims have launched the Neon Inkwell feed, which is their ongoing home for full cast narrative podcasts written by creators from all around the world. Not only does Neon Inkwell have weekly episode drops, they will be premiering an entirely new show every six to nine weeks. So if you are forever looking for new horror, mystery, fantasy, or sci-fi stories, like me, then subscribe to Neon Inkwell now. Find Neon Inkwell wherever you get your podcasts or visit rustyquill.com for more information. Welcome to 100 Horrors, a comedy podcast that seeks to rank the best 100 horror films of all time, as dictated to us by a poster that one of us owns. Every week we bicker over another film in an attempt to give it an overall scare factor and secure its place in the 100 Horrors list. With features such as... And... What would you say to them at a funeral? We take a light-hearted approach to horror cinema so that it can be enjoyed by even the most squeamish of listeners. So whether you're the person who's never seen a horror film in their life or the person who has a tattoo of Leatherface on the right ass cheek, there's something to be enjoyed in every episode of 100 Horrors! <laughs> stories that you cannot get out of your head. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Does everyone who came of age around 9-11 still go to the airport at least two hours early? I don't care what anyone says. Planning to be at the airport two hours before my flight is now such a part of my DNA as an anxious person, I'm never going back. I am so neurotic about flying now that one time I got to the airport so early, my flight wasn't even listed on the departures board. But listen... Airports have gotten so much better over the years that I'm more than happy to get to my gate laughably early, enjoy an overpriced meal, and read a book while I obsessively watch the message board for any changes. It's my attempt to retain some sort of control over a process I have almost no authority over. I've just distributed too much cortisol into my already overtaxed endocrine system to put myself through any more close calls when it comes to flying. And I fly a lot. A lot, a lot. I work in video production, which requires me to travel wherever the client is based for shoots. And on top of that, I move to a semi-remote area along Lake Michigan to be with my now wife, which added an hour and a half to my commute to the airport in Chicago. 
I never ever thought I'd return to the Midwest after I left to move to the West Coast shortly after my 18th birthday, but then a friend introduced me to my soulmate who was living halfway across the country. And then I visited her in this strange, enchanted, and somewhat abandoned part of the country, and I was sold. Fifteen months after we met, I packed up my dog and a mid-century chair I didn't want to leave behind, and I moved to this weird town where nature, industry, and architecture collide in a way that I find endlessly fascinating. You know how some places just have a vibe that, well, vibes with your vibes? Like, I've always loved LA because I can almost see the history of that place manifested through the vapor and the hills, and you can absolutely feel the cumulative souls that have passed through and the energy of the landscape from decades of creating, and you like the way it feels. That's how this place is for me. This dumpy, working-class, forgotten, and beautiful place. Philip K. Dick said that the symbols of the divine initially show up at the trash stratum, meaning you can't find magic in places that are too slick and new and polished. You need grit and history to access the divine, and this place that I live in is one big, glorious trash stratum. The other thing I like about the place that I live in is that it's right next to the infamous Gary, Indiana, which anyone who isn't from Indiana will immediately start singing to you when you tell them that's where you're from, regardless of your proximity to the small city. Aside from being a song in The Music Man, Gary, Indiana is probably most known for being the birthplace of the Jackson family, as in Michael, Janet, and Latoya Jackson. But for those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s, it also has a reputation for being the murder capital of the United States for several years running. I'm not sure how accurate that statistic is, having originated in a pre-internet world, but Gary has become a sort of a place of legend as a result. Gary was founded by the steel industry, and like all other cities that relied specifically on one industry to prosper— As that industry declined between the 70s and 90s, so did the city. Gary is dotted with symbols of past prosperity like impressive theaters, civil buildings, and long stretches of historic residential neighborhoods lined with impressive mansions, but more and more historic structures have been demolished as the price to maintain them outweighs the revenue generated by their use, And so more and more, Gary is an unsettling sweep of abandoned families and blight. And then here I come. Seeker of the trash stratum. Lover of the left behind. A middle-aged weirdo who delights in the long-forgotten and insists on living in places that no one else has any interest in living. They have a word for someone like me now. People like me who seek out dead places to breathe new life into who were revered as pioneers in the pre-internet world. Those of us who have never really fit in, but have the means to forge our own paths through the misfortune of generations of others. They call us gentrifiers. As well-meaning and curious as we are, we are ultimately cultural tourists and opportunists, all things I am sharply aware of as I explore the neglected stretches of land in my neighboring town. The places where buildings have tipped over like drunken sailors left for tangles of vegetation to overtake. 
And so I've limited my exploration of Gary over the years. And while I'm always tempted to take a drive to marvel at the crumbling relics of the once booming city, I restrict my visits these days because, well, it just feels kind of gross. All of that to say that I do have to pass through Gary on the way to Chicago, and more specifically, on my way to Midway Airport, which is the airport I almost always use because I've developed a near addiction to Southwest Airlines in all of its proletariat glory, which I'm sure no one is surprised by considering my preoccupation with the trash stratum. But I digress. Usually my map app shuttles me past Gary from Interstate 94, which is so far from the beauty and decay that I only know I'm in the vicinity because I can see the eerie plumes of fire shooting from the few remaining steel mills on the horizon. I will also say that my map app has almost never sent me on the same route to Midway, which I still haven't fully figured out in the nine years that I've lived here, but it only bolsters my insistence that I leave for the airport at a time that will have me arrive at least two hours before my flight is scheduled to take off. And one thing my map app loves to do is send me straight through Gary, Indiana. There are a couple of old highways that pass straight through Gary that were the main route from Chicago to the region where I live before the Skyway and other interstates were conceived of and erected in an attempt to make commuting more convenient and efficient. They also succeeded in isolating struggling communities even further from resources, which expedited the decline of those neighborhoods. But again, I digress. So today I had to get up at the ungodly hour of 5 a.m. to quickly get ready and leave my house by 5.30 to ensure that I had enough time to make the hour and a half trip to the airport, which would put me there by 7 a.m., a comfortable two hours before my 9 a.m. flight was scheduled to take off. My early morning routine to take these flights is second nature to me now. I essentially get dressed by the light of my phone flashlight and then attempt to sneak myself, my overpacked backpack, and my awkward roller bag out of the house and down the stairs without waking my wife, but you can imagine how successful I am at maneuvering all of those things without banging into any walls or my own shins. Then I queue up a podcast that will cover the full hour and a half commute and head out into the perfect stillness of early morning on the road. As much as I absolutely loathe getting up that early, I really do love having the world to myself in the warmth of my car with a cup of coffee and a podcast and my belly doing the jumps that my belly does when it's anxious about getting to the airport on time. I reassure my belly that we've got more than enough time to make it, even if we do encounter an accident or unexpected construction, and then we head out of our oasis in the woods along Lake Michigan and toward the big, beautiful city on the other side. Every time my map app sends me through Gary, I get the same mixture of fear and excitement, and today was no exception. It's wild how blindly I trust the information pinging from my phone up to space and then back into my lap, but when the app said to continue on Highway 12 and then onto 20 and then take a new turn onto some street that inevitably leads right into the heart of Gary, I obliged with the devotion of an apostle following their Christ. My heart leapt a little as I entered a residential street and passed two spectacular mansions sandwiched by a block and a half of completely derelict buildings in either direction. How is that possible? Who lives there? What are the lives of these people like? My brain whirred in my head and my curiosity was so intense it's all I can do to not quit my job and become a deranged anthropologist of the neighborhood. 
I don't need to catalog the lives of these people. I just need to know. How did they get here? What do they do? What do they need? Is it better to repair this town or just leave it to ebb and flow outside of the protective screen of functioning capitalism? My romantic side votes for the latter, but I've never had to live in a place like this. I grew up fairly poor, but I had access to ways out. I've never been restricted to one town and have never experienced living in an area so deprived of resources it would act as a black hole, pulling me ever backward into the void of unremembered places. I don't know what that feels like, and so I pass through with all of my curiosity and whimsy, warm and on my way to an exciting city where I will make money off of my creative mind and then return home to my wife and our cabin and our dogs and our dreams. The distribution of karma and blessings in this world will never make sense to me. I made my way down several more blocks of streets that were checkered with every type of house and every stage of repair and disrepair, and just before my app told me I was going to turn to head back to the interstate, something caught my eye. I was at a turn in the road where the houses had dwindled to meet a massive patch of land that I assumed had once been a continuation of the neighborhood, but was now an endless empty lot that stretched out and under the interstate that I could see off in the distance. Right before I reached the lot, there was a three-story brick mansion to my left with a lovely manicured lot that seemed to contradict the dry and yellowing lawn of the disregarded house next door. As I passed the handsome brick house, I noticed a young boy standing in the open doorway, staring out at the street with an innocuous look on his face. He was disheveled and dressed in clothes that looked like all of the clothes you see in the windows of Old Navy or the racks of TJ Maxx. I locked eyes with the boy and offered him a small smile, and then I screamed at what happened next. From the darkness of the house behind the boy, two long arms emerged, wrapped around his tiny waist, and pulled him straight back so hard and so fast that his arms and legs extended out as he clawed in the air in front of him, and his mouth made a small O shape, as if he were about to mew like a kitten. As soon as he was out of sight, the front door slammed shut and he was gone. Holy shit, I breathed out loud as I quickly pulled over to collect myself. Shit, 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 I said slightly louder and forced myself to take a few deep breaths. I hooked my arm over the back of my seat and used the leverage to turn back to study the house that was now about 20 feet behind me. The house sat perfectly still and seemingly untouched, and I strained to listen for any sounds of a struggle, but couldn't hear anything, even when I rolled down the window and let an icy blast of late winter air into the warm confines of my car. I rolled the window back up and stared straight ahead into the empty lot, contemplating what to do. I was suddenly acutely aware of my age and my skin color, and the delicate balance between being a concerned citizen and a full-blown Karen. On the one hand, I had just witnessed a very young and slightly messy-looking boy being snatched into a very beautiful home in the middle of a very tenuous town. But on the other hand, it was none of my fucking business. I was also the one who listened to true crime podcasts like it was my job, and judged the people who saw something but failed to say something, resulting in the death or dismemberment of an innocent life. Shit! Shit! I shouted at nothing, determined to curse my way into some type of resolution, but continuing to find myself in a very difficult and murky situation. I glanced at the time on my phone, also still very aware of my impending flight and the shoot the next day, and then craned around again to study the house, but there was still no sign of movement of any kind. Just call the police, 
I told myself, and proceeded to flip through the catalog of reasons why that would be a good or a bad idea in my head. On the one hand, I could save a young boy's life. On the other hand, I could bring the police to a home in an underserved area and unleash a whole heap of problems on an unsuspecting and potentially very innocent family. My brain flip-flopped between justification and contradiction, and then I remembered the thing that my brain had been trying real hard for me not to remember, even though the thing had just happened. First of all, the boy had been wearing short pants and short sleeves, and it was hovering just around 30 degrees that morning. So even if he had just woken up, it was far too cold for him to be wearing those clothes. The other thing that my brain had tried to bury in an attempt to romanticize my interaction with the young child in the town that I almost fetishized was that he had faint but very distinct red rings around his neck and wrists. Fine, fuck it, I'm calling the police, I told myself, and picked up my phone to dial 911. I punched in the three numbers before I could lose my nerve, but then my heart sank when the display that told me that my phone was trying to connect the call quickly transitioned into the dreaded call failed screen, which communicated that I was on my own out there. I craned around for a third time to study the street behind me, and all I could see was blocks and blocks of almost rubble, and my spidey senses told me that it probably wasn't the best neighborhood to walk around and look for a signal in. Not to mention the time it would take when I was already working on borrowed time if I wanted to stick to my schedule for the morning. I still had just under an hour to drive to get to the airport, and the later it stretched into the morning, the greater my chances that I'd encounter an accident or backup from the bottleneck of commuter traffic into Chicago. I took a deep breath, reassessed my situation, and knew in my heart of hearts that I simply could not drive away without doing at least some level of investigation to confirm that child was okay. I imagined the thousands of missing children I'd heard about through my preoccupation with true crime and horror movies, and knew that if I actually helped a child who was in serious danger, my whole life would officially be worth something. I knew that his little face would haunt me for the rest of my life if I didn't do anything and left him there alone and potentially in serious danger. I mustered all of my courage, got out of my car, and marched up to the front door before I could change my mind. I knocked on the door in a way that was very assertive, yet casual, so that if I was met with a perfectly nice family on the other side, I wouldn't come across as a total lunatic who needs to mind her own business, which I'm still not convinced I'm not. I waited for several seconds and didn't hear any signs of life inside or the telltale sounds of footsteps approaching the door. I knocked again with a little more intensity, but once again I was enveloped in the boundless quiet of a late winter morning in the industrial Midwest. I could hear the interstate off in the distance, but was otherwise surrounded by nothing but the buzzing of various wires and the soft hum of the wind in my ears. I turned my back to the house to study the neighborhood and confirmed that there was no inhabited homes nearby that might let me use their phone or could reassure me that it was a harmless family that lived in the home and I should move along and mind my own fucking business next time. I would have been thrilled to be called a Karen at that point if it meant that I could know for sure that that kid was okay. I decided to take one lap around the perimeter of the house, and if I still didn't see or hear anything, I'd go on my way and call the police to do a wellness check once I had service again. I wrapped my arms around my midsection to protect it from the cold that was starting to seep in and surveyed the house through the tears that were also welling up from the cold air whipping across the abandoned lot next door. 
I did a slow lap around the majestic building, noting the intricate ornamentation around the doors and windows and the extra attention to detail that was paid to the construction of the house that has been completely abandoned in modern construction. My father was a builder growing up, and I can't help but hear his voice declaring how they just don't make them like they used to. I tried to walk with the authority of someone who was circling a stranger's house for official reasons, and not simply casing the joint to rob it, while being painfully aware that my yoga pants and Madewell coat painted a clear picture that I had no business trespassing on this lawn at 6.30 in the morning. I had almost completed my mission when I heard it. The sound was so clear, it almost seemed like it was coming from inside my own body and it triggered an instinct inside of me that sent my feet immediately into motion to run inside and save that child. I was instantly aware that there is a potent and maternal impulse that must live inside all women, because as the scream ripped through the walls of that great brick mansion and pierced my soul, all of my cells came together to propel me forward and toward the sound of the child that desperately needed my help. Without thinking, I almost catapulted myself onto the porch, grasped the oversized doorknob, turned and pushed my way through the enormous oak door. The sensation of entering the home was similar to passing through a portal as the hum of the wind was instantly snuffed out on the other side of the thick brick walls, and the air turned still and wood-scented from the ornate oiled staircase that appeared before me. The house was empty but warm, and the windows had been placed in such a way that the rooms were remarkably bright despite the still dim light outside. I closed the door behind me to keep the warmth in like every good Midwesterner is trained to do from a young age, and then stood in the still, thick silence of the house to listen for the boy. After a couple of seconds, I heard him again, screaming with the intensity of someone in extreme pain, and the scream was coming from the back of the house. Once again, the sound of the boy's anguish ignited a primal need for me to protect, and I launched myself past the grand staircase and through a series of rooms that I assumed were a dining room, a library of some sort, followed by a large living area with a fireplace that consumed nearly a third of the back wall. I paused again to listen and heard the sounds of someone laughing, which conjured images of the boy's captors delighting in the pain that they were inflicting on him, so I headed in that direction with even more urgency. As I got closer to the sound, it dawned on me that I was completely unarmed and unprepared to defend myself or the boy once I found whoever was holding him captive, but I was driven by an unexplainable confidence in my own ability to figure it out one way or another, and so I continued on. There were two doors on either side of the fireplace, and instinct told me that the door to the right likely led to the kitchen, and it would make more sense to head to the left and into what I assumed would be bedrooms, and so I chose the door on the left. Sure enough, I entered a short hallway on the other side of the door and paused for a third time to listen for the sound, convinced that it had been coming from one of the rooms extending off from that hall. After just a moment, I heard the laughing again from inside of the room at the furthest end of the hall, so I took a deep breath and strode toward the door, ready as I could possibly be to confront whatever was on the other side and bring the boy to safety. Without thinking too much, I turned the handle to the door and burst through, taking a sort of stance that I imagined would look intimidating to whoever I encountered, but instead I spilled into yet another empty room. A small prick of panic appeared in my belly, and I was thrown completely off balance because I had been totally sure that I had heard the laughing just inside of that room. 
The sound had been right on the other side of the door, so close I could visualize the person's open mouth as the noises traveled through the space between the door and the floor. There were two more doors inside of that room, and again I assumed that the smaller one would be the closet, and the larger one would lead to a bathroom or maybe a set of stairs that would lead to the second floor. I decided to check the smaller door because it dawned on me that maybe they had slid into the closet to hide right before I'd opened the door, but when I opened it, it revealed yet another hallway. This one was more narrow than the previous one, and it was just a long hallway with solid walls and no more doors to try along the way. I crossed the room to try the other door, and it did indeed lead to a small bathroom, and so I went back to look down the hallway to assess my options. I wondered if this hall led to what would have been the servants' quarters, and decided it made the most sense that the boy would have been brought back there, knowing that there were probably lots of secret doors and spaces built in to conceal the servants as they completed their duties undetected, and that those chambers would be ideal for hiding a small boy. I entered the hallway and was immediately struck by how dark it was compared to the rest of the house. The hall stretched on for much farther than I thought it would when I decided to explore the next wing of the house, and it finally emptied into a medium-sized foyer, with one door on each of the five walls that came together to make up the space. It felt like the foyer should also have a door to the outside, where the maids could have access to hang the wash on the clothesline, or the cook could have quickly harvested vegetables from the garden, but it was fully enclosed and so I took a moment to check in with my gut to decide what to do next. As my eyes moved between the five doors, I was struck with a cold clarity, and suddenly my decision to enter this home to search for some strange boy wasn't just foolish, it was terrifically dangerous, not to mention totally illegal. I was suddenly aware of how I must look as I barged through this unfamiliar home in search of a child that may or may not be in danger. I had definitely heard screaming somewhere inside of the house, but all of a sudden I remembered the sounds that emerged from my nephew's gaming system as they battle creatures from the underworld, and how some of the screams that the computer generates were more nightmarish than anything that could be produced in the natural world. What if all I had witnessed was a concerned parent snatching their child out of the doorway and away from the cold and the threat of oncoming traffic? What if the red marks had just been his skin's reaction to the freezing wind on his bare arms and neck? What if that child was now comfortably playing video games in some other part of this house while his parents were hard at work on finishing the renovations of this magnificent home before they moved in and lived happily ever after? What if the giggling I heard was coming from the same boy or his siblings as they enjoyed their play like every other set of siblings in the world did every single day? I had been so preoccupied with my fascination of Gary that it had never dawned on me that some people could simply live there and were normal people with normal lives and the world didn't exist to simply be perceived by me. Curious, well-meaning me. As soon as my stupidity dawned on me, I whirled around and hurried back down the hallway and into the bedroom and back through the first hall and then back into the large living room with the oversized fireplace and then back through the door that would lead to the library, except this time it didn't. This time, when I opened the door, anticipating to rush through it so that I could pass through the library and then the dining room and back past the staircase, 
and into the entryway that would lead me back outside and to my car and then off to the airport where I could still make it in time to fly to my shoot in New York, where I would meet my friends to make videos together, followed by drinks in the village and then dinner nearby. This time, when I opened the door, I was back at the long, dark hallway that led to the servants' quarters. My heart sank for a moment, but was quickly buoyed by the knowledge that it was a very large house and I had simply gotten turned around. And so I backtracked into the large living room and took a second look at the doors. I had definitely taken the door that was opposite of the wall with the fireplace and the two other doors, but my heart soared when I realized that there was a fourth door just to the right of the door that I'd taken, and it was positioned in such a way that it also seemed perfectly parallel to the fireplace wall, so it would have been easy to mistake as the door that would lead me outside. I walked over to that door, opened it, and my heart soared even more when it did lead to the library. I almost whooped with glee as I strode across the immaculate inlay in the hardwood floor and back to the door that would lead to the dining room, but this time it didn't. This time when I opened the door, I was once again greeted by the long, dark hallway to the servants' quarters. My fear was so great in that moment that I almost let out a sob, and I realized with equal horror that my fear was tinged with grief over everything I instinctively knew I was about to lose. I doubled back again to the fireplace room, and there was a quick moment where I thought maybe I'd be okay because there was a third door on the wall parallel to the fireplace wall, this time to the right of the door I'd come through, but that moment was quickly extinguished by more fear because I knew in my heart that that door hadn't been there the last time I'd been in the room. And so it was beyond foolish to think that my outcome would change when I passed through it. But I didn't have a choice. So I chose the other door that led to a room that I hadn't been in before. And that room had two more doors to choose from. And when I chose the door to my left, it opened into a large closet. And when I chose the door on the right, I was back at the long, dark hall. This time I chose the long, dark hall. I walked back down the hall, acutely aware that I was heading in a different geographic direction than the first time I'd walked down the hall, but was somewhat relieved to find the five doors in the foyer at the end of the hall. As I stood in the foyer and contemplated the doors, I also became aware that while the home was quite large, the distance that I'd traveled as I'd circled around the house from the outside was about a third of the size of the distance that I'd traveled since I'd been inside of the home. It was a big house, but it wasn't this big. And I immediately dismissed the thought as my mind only had the capacity to process one impossible experience at a time. I quickly ran to the first door and threw it open, but there was just a wall of brick on the other side. It was the same thing behind the four other doors just old brick from top to bottom. But just as I was about to turn away from the fifth door and run in the opposite direction, I heard the laughing again on the other side of the wall. Help! I screamed and immediately started pounding on the wall. My hands and fists made weak slapping sounds as the soft flesh of my palm made contact with the stout force of the brick. But I pounded and I shouted as hard as I could while the soft sounds of human laughter trailed off and out of reach. 
Once the laughing had completely stopped, I slid to the floor of the five-pointed room, sat with my back to the wall, and wept for a while. I've been here for 21 days now. The faucets work in the bathrooms, which was a welcome surprise and honestly the only reason I'm still alive. Oh, and yes, I tried to break the windows. I did that the second I knew I probably wasn't getting out of here. I pounded so hard I almost broke my hand and stopped myself just before I made that potentially fatal mistake. It was also the moment that I realized that I have to be extremely careful in here because something that started as a simple bone break could very easily escalate into a deadly infection if I'm not careful. I can see out of the windows perfectly, so I know that time has passed, and I keep a near-constant lookout for any sign of people, but so far I've only seen one, and he was a delivery driver who was clearly lost. But at least I saw him, and seeing a human face really made my day, I'm sad to say. Some days I find new rooms, but most days it's just more of the same. I'm here, I'm warm, I'm wandering. I went to the second and third floors on the afternoon of the first day, but they are both an exact copy of the first floor, and so I hadn't gone up there much until three days ago. It's one thing to be wandering in circles on this level. It's a whole other level of derangement to experience this on the second and third floors, where interacting with the space becomes too disorienting to hang on to reality, and I have to flee back to the space where I can continue to pretend I'm okay. Then three days ago, I hadn't found a new room in a couple of days, so I wandered back upstairs out of sheer boredom, and that's when I saw it. Like I said before, the second and third floors are exact replicas of the first floor, with one tiny exception. I was trying the doors in the fireplace room on the third floor, and I'd reached one of my moments where I became so overwhelmed and exhausted that I had to lay down for a while. Sometimes I lay down for five minutes, sometimes I stay there for the rest of the day, and on that day I laid flat on my back in the middle of the floor and I nodded off for a while. I'm not exactly sure how long I was asleep, but when I woke up it was early afternoon, right around the time that sunlight seems to shoot directly through the windows like perpendicular laser beams determined to make watching television impossible. I woke up and was looking toward the ceiling, and one of those laser beams was shooting straight through something near the top of the room, about five feet above one of the tall windows. I jumped straight up to study it and realized that there is some sort of ventilation grate about 13 feet from the ground in that room. I'm assuming it was installed in the attic on the original home, and that there's some kind of glitch in whatever simulation I'm trapped in that is exposing it in the exact place that it's in in real life. It's a very long shot, but I think that maybe if I can reach that grate and remove it, I could stick my arm out and signal for help. My main challenge is that there isn't a stick of furniture in this place, not one single thing that I could move or remove to boost me up there, but I think I have a plan. There is a picture rail along that wall, and I can reach it if I stretch. If you don't know, picture rails are essentially a quarter-inch molding that runs the length of the wall, 
that they used to use to hang art from with a hook and a wire so that they didn't have to put nails into the plaster walls and destroy them. What I need to do is use the picture rail to hoist my upper body up enough that I can then swing my leg around, somehow get a toehold on the rail, and then push myself up to grab onto the top of the window and then climb on top of the inch-wide window frame and stand on it while I remove the grate to be able to stick my arm through it and wave at someone passing by. And then hope to God that they see me. Even if the house allows my arm to be seen, which I'm not sure that it will, it will still be a long shot that someone passing by will look over at that exact moment, see my arm, and register that it's a cry for help. But I have to try. I'm not currently strong enough to pull myself up on the quarter-inch ledge using just my fingertips, but I'm practicing. All day, every day, I'm practicing until I physically have to stop because I'm risking exhaustion or injuring myself. I'm slowly getting better and stronger, and every day I can pull my body up a couple of inches further. But I'm also getting weaker and more hungry. I don't let myself think about the moment when the hunger will eventually prevail over my ability to climb. But I know it's not far off. Still... I have to try. And I can hear the families. I realize now that there are remnants of lives here. Snapshots of moments of decades of souls inhabiting this place. Raising families, loving each other, hurting each other, responding to the world around them. It's all here. It taunts me. And it comforts me. And mostly it reminds me of how close I am, but also how far. It's excruciating. This simulation of existing. This place where I'm technically alive, but also not at all living. I wander with no way out. I live, but I starve. I am warm, but there is no warmth. And worst of all, I hope. God damn, this barbaric, but ever present hope. was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Courtney Eck. For more scary stories that you cannot get out of your head, please join our Patreon at please leave backslash patreonpod.com. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter at Please Leave Pod. Our email is please leave pod at gmail.com and our website is please leave pod.com. This has been a Two Penguins Media Production. Whack. <laughs>